This is Tell Me What to Read, a podcast from the booksellers at Booktopia, where every week I chat with some fabulous readers about the books they love and why you might love them too. I'm Ben Hunter, and I'm recording this on unceded Bongal country, and we pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about all things Sarah J. Maas. I have a new to Sarah J. Maas reader. Uh, who's just discovering the Akatar series, and I have a veteran SJM fan who is very excited for the new one, and it's uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna tease this out a bit, um, and we're gonna talk about uh, a few other books that might tickle the fancy as well, and we're gonna talk about what we love about Australian writing. Just as a weird segue, why not? Um, because we do, <laughs> um, and to take us through all of that, I have fabulous human beings in the room. Joel Naum and Jess Paul. How are you both? I am good, thanks. Hi, Ben. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how, how do we begin to discuss the enduring legacy and powerhouse of fantasy romance fiction that is Sarah J Maas? I feel like she almost defines a category these days. I would definitely say she's the benchmark author for fantasy romance at the moment, for sure. When did you discover SJM. Jess? Um, many years ago. Um, <laughs> I cannot give you a date precisely, but probably five years ago, maybe. Um, and I went on what can probably only be, de- be described as a binge. Mm. Um, and I read everything. I read everything she has ever written in a very, very short space of time. Um, so I began with what is colloquially known as Akatar, A Court of Thorn and Roses, which yes. is the first book um, in one of her series, and then read all four of the books that are in that series, which are uh, a trilogy, a little novella, and then her first adult book in that series, which mm. is A Court of Silver Flame. Um, so I read those. And even the novella is quite large. Um, I think for a novella it is, yeah. I think it's like a couple of hundred pages. Um, It's like a little Christmas special, very cute. Um, And And then uh, the the preceding series was uh, Throne of Glass? Yes. And so I don't think there's a particular order that you need to read the different series in between Akatar and Throne of Glass. Mm. Um, Throne of Glass was the the first thing she wrote. And I um, I think that's my favorite of everything that she's written. Um, it's the series or the first the book. series it's eight books so it is a bit of commitment like if you're gonna go in and, and do it you've, you've gotta you've gotta do it um <laughs> it's complete though isn't it it is complete and it's the only thing of hers that is complete which i think is important um but you can really see her development as a writer from the very first thing that she wrote all the way through to the eighth book at the end and obviously like in classic harry potter fa- fashion they get bigger and bigger and bigger as she goes as well um and the last book, uh, Kingdom of Ash, is just epic. It's so mm-hmm. good. And it's like got this amazing battle scene at the end. And um, yeah, I really like it. What I like about that series as well is that the main character has uh, not just one love interest for all eight books. It's not like mated for life and done. Yep. Um, she like builds that throughout the eight books, which I which I really like. Um and then there's Crescent City. And that one you do need to read last, I would say. You don't have because to read everything there's... beforehand, but um, it's better if you've read some 
don't start with that. Right. I can't say anything else. Is that because there's some interconnection with an established world or because- I can neither confirm nor deny any further (laughs) than this point. Um, We are on the eve of the release of the hotly anticipated House of Flame and Shadow. That's going to be the third in this Crescent series. Yes. Um, And this is, at one stage, she was a four young adults author. Now she's firmly in the adults only camp. This is an adult book. (laughs) <laughs> Having just read the first two books from Agatha, I would say she was always writing adult fiction. <laughs> Maybe that's why it's got, got so many young people into reading. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It certainly got into reading. Yeah. <laughs> so you, uh, by the look on your face, Joe, I, I think you're really enjoying this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, this, this is, you've come to this as a very overhyped, um, much best-selling series, mm-hmm. um, and you started reading the Akatar books. Uh, what what were your first impressions? So my my introduction to romanticy was as a publisher. Mm. I published quite a lot of romance and a lot of erotic romance when I was a publisher before I was working at Booktopia. Before I was a bookseller, and I think I slightly burnt out on it. I read a lot of it when I was publishing it, and. Um, edited a lot of it and then basically couldn't read very much of it after I left and left left the smut mill, (laughs) left the smut mill. Yeah. (laughs) That was great while it lasted. (laughs) It was quite a gravy train, (laughs) but yeah, um, I didn't read that much of it after I left. And so I had a bit of a break and then this last year I rediscovered it, the, the genre through fourth wing. Um, Excellent. Okay. And loved it. Really loved Fourth Wing. Not just for the smart, which was very, very good top shelf, but the um the the fantasy. You know, mm. it was a it was a good, well realized world, lots and lots of plot. And I was I was looking for something that was just, you know, I could just get into without having to think about it too much. And uh it it ticked all the boxes. And then I read Iron Flame at the end of the year. And then I was just in the zone for it. So I was like casting about for what do I read? I I want more of this. Mm. And a number of different people, including Jess (laughs) and my partner, who uh, is also a huge fan of Akatar and Sarah J. Maas was, um, yeah, everyone. I had from multiple different places people saying, well, you should read Sarah J. Maas. And I was thinking, well, we have this new book coming out in this new series later, like by the time I get back to work. Maybe I should give this a go. I love this for you. The whole office was excited about Joel getting to chapter 55. The whole office. (laughs) There was almost like a sidebar chat going around like, does anybody know what chapter Joel's on yet? Oh, wow. He's getting close, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's the it's chapter fifty five is the is the chapter that falls open when you borrow it from the library. <laughs> Just in case you were wondering. Wow. No spoilers. <laughs> Two chilies. Okay, good. Thank you for benchmarking that. Um, so, someone who has read both SJM and um, Rebecca Yaros quite close together. How do the two compare? Because they the, these two authors seem to be uh, leading the the bestseller charts mm, at the moment. That's an interesting. I, I do think Sarah J. Maas suffers a little bit because she was writing it. These these are writ, were written as YA novels, even if I do think the sex probably pushes it into more of a new adult or adult category. Um, but so, so, what do you think the restraint there is? Is it a, a, a kind of 
trope that she's trying to yeah, and conform I think to. She was writing them so much earlier. You, you can't you can't take Rebecca Yaris and say there she is isolated on her own as if she wrote that on her own because those books are so full of the tropes which Sarah J Maas helped popularize and develop. Not that they did they existed when Sarah J Maas was writing them as well. They were in the books that I was publishing fifteen years ago. So it's almost but, anachronistic to. But but um, all of these authors are standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Yes, they yes. are all picking up on the tropes and then they are finding new twists on them and finding different ways to write them. So it's just a little bit less developed in it with a modern sensibility, I guess. The, the, especially the first one in Akatar was much more like a fairy tale almost. Um, if you were um, cut off, um, this is going to be a hard question. If you were iced and you couldn't read another um until let's say christmas uh and you have to Heaven for fan. <laughs> <laughs> um you have to choose uh would you go for the subsequent uh sarah j or the subsequent yaros oh interesting pick your team <laughs> i'm gonna ask this question of both of you actually <laughs> If you if you I, couldn't I get House of Flame and Shadow, I don't even need to think about it. I know I know my answer. Um, uh, What's your answer? Mars through and through every day, <laughs> all day, all day. Excellent. Um, I think I'd probably read the next Yaros because I'm more I I enjoyed that series. I'm much more invested. I think in and especially considering without spoilers what happened. What happened at the end of Fourth Wing, I think, set the second book up to be tricky to pull off. She pulled mm. it off, but I think what she's done by setting up the third book, there's a lot. I'm more excited about that than I am about reading the next Sarah J. Mars. Yeah, but that's because Joel's only read two SJMs. But, that's yeah. why. But I, luckily, I'm not getting it iced out and I can just keep reading all of them. Yeah. You absolutely <laughs> And can. there's so many of them. This is the brilliant thing about it. If you like reading and you like this type of, once you discover it, it's so much fun. It's a gold vein. of reading. Because you're just like, you're just not going to run out anytime soon. And so you just always got something and it's always the next thing and it's existing characters. And Sarah J. Mars in particular, I think, and Jess and I talked about this, does the sort of group dynamic yeah, quite well. Yeah, the found family the... she does is just mm. brilliant. She does, she does it in every single series and they're all exceptional. Yeah. And that gives you, as a, as a romance publisher, <laughs> the thing you do in romance is you can't have the romance novel end with the characters not getting together. So you've got to have them get together. You've got to have a happily ever after. And then what do you do for the rest of the series? You can't just have continue to throw them break up and get back together every (laughs) single book. So what they tend to do, what has become the thing, which is that you find characters related to the main characters to tell their romance story, but continue the overall plot of the world that you've built. And that's what they do. And um, I think because of the way she builds that core family character. Yeah. And Throne of Glass gives you is like lot. the most beautiful example of that. Mm. It's so good. Would you start with, I'm sorry if I already asked this, mm. would you start with Throne of Glass or would you start with Akatai if you were going to start today? Personally, I would today? start with Throne of Glass. Mm. And I that is not the advice you gave me. <laughs> yeah, but because I knew you couldn't sit through eight books without getting distracted. So um, <laughs> I changed and my answer. And they wanted to see what happened at chapter 55. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you're not Joel, I would suggest that you start with Throne of Glass and then go Akatar and then go Crescent City. Um, and that's particularly because also Crescent City are the most recent. We've got the yep. new one coming out imminently. Um, House of Flame and Shadow, 
Um, yes. What are your expectations of it? I Can expect I ask that, that she will be huge. Yeah, this is the one. Physically and um, in sales as well. But like, I I imagine it's going to be like, what, 900 pages? Oh, the physical size physical of the book. Physical size of the book. She's going to be chunky. The website is saying 352. Incorrect. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, yeah, I would maybe say, we should get that fact-checked. Yeah, uh, which is really awkward because the data feeds are my job, but I would say, <laughs> <laughs> I would say that the metadata for that is incorrect um, and that it's and that it's going to be a really big book. And Because um, <laughs> Crescent City 1 and 2 are both really big books and yeah. it will be full of little Easter eggs. Um, I can't say too much without spoiling the first two books. Um but I would say that we are going to uh, meet some yes. characters. The extent is 848 pages. 848. That sounds yeah, more that like sounds my kind of number. Yeah, that sounds more accurate. Um, we're going to re-meet some characters that we love, I, w- I think. And I'm really excited for them to meet some other characters that I love. <laughs> um, and I think that there is going to be a lot of love. That's gorgeous. Mm. Um this is an exciting time. I think someone's going to die. Oh, naturally. Someone, I just, someone important. I, I just, I think it is going to be somebody important. I just hope I'm not too sad about it. Oh, that is juicy. Mm. Maybe, maybe book a leave day for when it comes out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tomorrow. Yeah. I will be <laughs> sick. <laughs> uh, here's a pivot. Um, uh, Australian uh, writing. Um, I love it. We love it at Booktopia. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now we have our annual poll for Australia's favourite book or a favourite Australian book, the Fab Award. I need to say that acronym in the correct order. Uh, what do you love about Australian writing? What do you think makes the Australian reading landscape different? I know Jess, you're a POM and uh, oh, Joel. Oh, you noticed? Uh, Joel, you're... Your partner is not from Australia. She's also from the UK. So that's, you know, the UK is a very um, literary culture. Um, so what makes Australia tick um, as a book scene? And, and yeah, what do you love about Australian books and, and who do you love in Australian books? Mm, that is an interesting question. Shall I go first or do you want to go? Okay. I think um, Australian the Australian literature scene sells itself down a bit. Um, certainly when Anna, my partner, came over from the UK, she she's she's in publishing as well. And she she was com- had in the back of her head this idea of Australia as being this sort of literary desert. And even though she was coming here to work in books, <laughs> she was thinking that there was that it was going to be this sort of starved part of the culture. And she found it to be very much the opposite. And that her impression is way more people in Australia actually read, which I believe is borne out by the stats that there are more Australians who read more often books, novels than um, than in the UK. So I actually don't think, and they might not all be reading Australian fiction, to be fair, mm. but they are re- readers, big readers. So it's a, it's a very vibrant culture here. Our books are very expensive, which is, um, I think, a tricky thing. But there's a very, very wide pool of people who are reading e-books, reading library books, reading older books, getting secondhand books, and I, I'm all for it, read as much as possible. In terms of Australian fiction itself, I say I think I don't I'm very reluctant to say that there's something so distinctly different about Australian writing that mm. makes because I because I love everything 
you know, I love the genre stuff. I love it. And so there isn't something super specifically distinctive, except for the fact that reading books by people with a similar background to you and a similar um, context frame does is an important part of your development, I think. You need to be able to see that. It's a sort of diversity representation thing. And if all you ever read is UK and US books, no matter what genre you're reading, then I feel like you're going to miss out on something. There is something there, but it's going to be different depending on the genre. Mm. What do you what do you think, Jess? Um, yeah, I agree because I used Australian books to educate me on living in Australia. And before you came? Um, not really so much before I came because they're actually really difficult to get hold of outside mm. of Australia. Um, also, I didn't really know that they existed. Um, and when I, I didn't work in books before I came to Australia, I, work, I was working in data and um, coming over here, I was charmed by how vibrant the bookstore culture was, how vibrant the secondhand bookstore culture was, how um, fresh it felt. I loved walking, I love walking into Australian bookstores and seeing areas on our site that are dedicated to Australian authors. Um, obviously because UK think they're the center of the world that that, every, they, that just doesn't exist. Um, so I really love that. And I loved being able to pick up authors like Trent Dalton and read his experience of what it was like growing up in Brisbane and me being like, oh yeah, okay, I can see similarities of how that might like translate to growing up in London, but is still very, very different. And yeah, and I and I liked how that gave me a different lens of what it was like to live there. Hmm. I don't I don't think this is purely unique to Australia, but I feel like there are some social, cultural and historical questions that are open in in our mm. um, landscape. And a writer like Trent Dalton or Melissa Lukashenko or David Malouf, to keep it in Brisbane, <laughs> <laughs> um, is is it's trying to um, is charting that territory mm. and is um, looking for not necessarily answers, but um, is is filling the space that's left by those question marks that hang over our culture. Mm. And I find that an exciting thing to dive into as a reader. And that must be the case. I mean, it's certainly the case in American writing, New Zealand writers I've read. Even, yeah, it must be the case in every culture. But I think as as an Australian who lives in this culture with these question marks hanging over our heads, um, yeah, experiencing art that tackles that mm. and embraces that question um, yeah. is an exciting and vibrant and wonderful thing. And using it as a map for exploration as well. Like I loved re reading um, Diana Reed and being like, oh yeah, I can, I can pitch that place in Newtown and I can- Yes. I know exactly which coffee shop she's talking about at Sydney <laughs> University. I know I can picture it. Um, and Jesse too, and, and books like that, where all of a sudden I can see myself in those places because actually I have been there now. Or if I haven't been, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to that place. Mm. Oh, yeah. that's I always love to go to somewhere that's mentioned in a novel. I yeah. love a bit of literary tourism. <laughs> um, something that's uh, set in a place you probably cannot physically go 
is a series that you've been raving about, Jess. Um, Legends and Lattes and Bookshops and Bone Dust is the the second one in this series. And you have lovingly described this as cosy and gay, Uh, (laughs) which I feel like that just sells it already. But um, tell me about these books and how you discovered them. So I got sick over Christmas and um, it was like the perfect low stakes, easy read. And Mm. I just loved it. It was like I was really invested in the characters. I kept reading because I wanted to know what happened. But at the same time, it was like so not stressful. Um, And it's some of the best immediate world building I've ever jumped into. Like, Like the magic system, the creatures that are in the books are... It's that really great fantasy where... um. It is completely believable from the first page. Um, would highly recommend. It is adorably cozy. The first book, Legends and Lattes, is about a orc who wants to hang up her sword. She's tired of being bloodthirsty and instead wants to set up a coffee shop in a town that has never, ever heard of coffee. Nice. <laughs> and it's just like the most adorable presence, like um, not premise. premise ever. Um also helped by the fact that it's a little bit sapphic and I love that. So, yeah, 10 out of 10 would recommend. That sounds like a delightful little yeah. and holiday of a book. the second book, which has just come out, came out in like December, is Bookshops and Bone Dust, but it's actually a prequel. So it's set um, before Legends and Lattes as Viv, the um, bloodthirsty orc, is <laughs> mid-campaign. And has Excellent. to, uh, she gets injured and has to take a little sabbatical and... Um, She's quite independent and she finds it difficult to sit still. So she ends up in a different kind of trouble. I mm. see. Say no more. Um, <laughs> which should you read first if you're, you're diving matter. in first? Because they're just, they're just yeah. gorgeous and yeah. you, they, you, they require nothing of you as a reader. You just get in. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely wonderful. These have a very D&D feel to them. Oh, yes. Very much D&D. Yeah. Yeah. They, even the cover art, everything about this looks, this is. Oh, yeah. this sounds this sounds really fun. Yeah. I might. <laughs> Whoever made um, the honor is it honor amongst these the new Dungeons and Dragon film? Yeah, mm-hmm. if they haven't already got onto this, hot tip. Yeah, yeah. Make it into a film, please, well, or a the- mini series. <laughs> hey, why not? <laughs> I'm not fussy. <laughs> you'll send the cast list out to the um, yeah. respective directors um thank you both for sharing your recommendations and your insights and your loving presence with me today uh if you want to learn more about the books we've discussed on this episode we'll put links to them in the notes in the uh, for this episode and uh do come back we have new episodes every week so get subscribed and uh until next time happy reading <laughs> <laughs>